0: All right, guys, we are back with our teaching in the book of Revelation. Now, the last time we were here, we were dealing with the church of Sardis. That is the church of the Reformation period, which was appeared roughly about 1500 to 1700 AD. Now, you have to keep in mind all along as we work through these particular churches, we are always interpreting these letters with the prophetic, the literal prophetic means or manner of interpretation. That is, we understand that there is a literal meaning and message to the church of that day, but there is also an overarching prophetic message that speaks to the church as we call it, the age of the church, or you can kind of divide in the sense of that this is what the prophetic means, the prophetic ages of the church. Okay. So the last time we were here, we're dealing with the Reformation period, which is basically a return to the correct Christian doctrines, or at least some of them to to the correct Christian doctrines for the church at large, coming from under the, uh, some of, not completely in totality, but some of, the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. This is what led to the Protestant Reformation, and so we had a lot of great doctrinal creeds that were established during this particular time. However, as we said earlier in the previous video, in the second generation, they soon began to reestablish state churches. And this led to people actually coming into the visible church. And we always remember what I mean by visible church. The true church, the true church is often, is we we refer to as the invisible church. Okay. Jesus himself knows all the members of that church, his true church, those who are truly saved. The visible church simply means everyone who professes Christianity, everybody going to church and all who are in the visible church are not saved. But the point is, those people in the period of reformation, second generation that we're referring to, were basically coming into the church, By virtue of baptism as babies, their parents were baptizing them. So there was no personal faith involved. And therefore, this church, as the Lord rightly said, was spiritually dead. Okay, but so let us move now to the next age of the church. Remember, the literal prophetic period of the church we're moving now to would be the church of Philadelphia. All right. So let's go to Revelation chapter three, starting in verse number seven. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David and who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens, says this. Okay. so now we see in our introduction of the letter, the recipient of the letter is to the church in Philadelphia. Now, as for concerning that prophetic age time, this is the age of evangelism. A period of roughly around 1700 to 1900 and this is a good name for that too because Philadelphia means brotherly love brotherly love so it is a good name for that church as well as that prophetic time period because it was the period of evangelism It was a time in which Christian missionaries basically could go anywhere in the world that they wanted to go. And this is why we see Jesus referring to himself and his deeds, his actions. That is the one who possesses the keys and the one who opens and closes doors. He opens the door to Christian ministry so that evangelism, the gospel can be spread to all parts of the world. All right. But nevertheless, The recipient, Philadelphia, the name, the meaning of the name, brotherly love, that time period reference that we're talking about, 1700 to 1900. Jesus' reference to himself basically comes out of Revelation 1 and 18 when he speaks of the one who holds the key. But let's look at some of the other things that he says concerning himself. He calls himself holy and true. Now that word true actually Alethanos means genuine, the one who is truly genuine. So he is one who is holy in the sense of one who is separate from all things. That is a certain reverence that is to be given to God and God alone in the absolute sense. So he is holy. He is the genuine one. He is that true Messiah. And then he is the one who has the key of David. And then this is where we can see the same issue in, I think it is Isaiah chapter 22, when it talks about a particular Elisabeth, is that his name? But nevertheless, the issue is about the one who is given a key in which that access it is given to a particular individual access. So the key of David. Now, Jesus is sent himself. He is the son of David. He possesses, therefore, the key of David. We say the son of David, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the sent one of God. He is the one who is to come. Okay, so therefore he has the keys and the key always has to do with the granting of access, the granting of access. And that's why we refer to this period, and it's clearly, because it is a done thing, we can look back in the past and see from period of 1700 to 1900, that evangelistic gate that was thrown wide open to Christian ministers during this particular time. So, the reference to Jesus. One who has the key, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one is able to open. So therefore, Jesus shows himself to be the one who gives the access into ministry. Now, this is also an interesting thing, too. And I don't want to put a lot of time on it, but it is good to consider. Those doors are opened by Jesus himself. That is the ministry to witness. You find an interesting thing when you look at. In Acts chapter 16, I believe it is, when Paul wanted to go into certain areas like in Asia and Bithynia, but the spirit of the Lord or the spirit of Christ did not allow him to go into those areas. In other words, notice how that even the spreading of the gospel was controlled by Jesus at that time. And by the idea of spreading of the gospel, it simply means as we are here now, the opening of doors. And so, and and you find that even that later on in, I believe it's first Peter chapter one, as Peter talks to those Jews that are scattered uh, 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 abroad in the Gentile world, he mentions now Bithynia and Asia. So the gospel did move into those areas eventually. But the point is that I'm trying to stress is, it moved and it spread it according to the will of Jesus. Notice once again, what does he say? He has the keys. He opens the door and when he opens the door, that is the door to evangelism, no one can shut it. And when he does not allow evangelism to take place in that area, it won't take place in that area. That's an interesting thing to consider. But nevertheless, so we have the recipient of the letter. We have the disposition of Jesus Christ and the church of Philadelphia. The letter that he writes is very similar in the sense that to, to the church of Smyrna in that the reason why I say it center is there was nothing bad that Jesus had to say about this particular church. All he has is commendation. All right. But nevertheless, let us now look at those particular commendations in verse number eight. I know your deeds. Behold, I've put before you an open door, which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. So now let's look at all of these things in the, in the commendation. So the first thing that Jesus says, as he says to all of the church, churches. (laughs) I know your deeds. I know your deeds. In other words, the Lord is well aware of the lives and the activities of the people in Philadelphia. And notice he also says, behold, I have put before you an open door. This once again speaks of, remember how Jesus styled himself in verse number seven, the one who has the key of David opening and shutting the door. It's just simply giving reference back to that statement again. But again, the emphasis cannot be denied. He said, I have put before you this open door. So that takes takes us back to what I just said earlier. The door of evangelism is opened by Jesus. In other words, just, let me just simply say it this way so you'll get it is not always what we want to do in the sense of who we want to evangelize to it is when the Lord has set the time in his own choosing. Okay. And so that's, again, that is just a wonderful concept. It's not always how we want to organize and do things. It's when the Lord opens the door and the Lord has the ability. Of course he does. He is the Lord to shut that door and no evangelism will take place until he decides for it to happen. But let's go on. And so he says, you have a little power. Now this basically speaks to, uh, um, their m- minuteness of size. They, in other words, let, let's let me give a practical understanding. They weren't some mega church. They didn't have great resources. They didn't have a great number of people. They didn't have all of the bells and all of the whistles. They had small things. They, they, they most likely were not a wealthy church. So the idea is you don't have so much, but that which they do have, they were faithful in these things. And that's why he says, But nevertheless, you don't have so many things, maybe not so many people and things of that nature. But notice what he says, but you have kept my word. The one thing that they did have, that they did possess was faithfulness. And it was because of this faithfulness that the Lord was gracious to extend to them a door of evangelism. And they walked through those doors in a mighty way. And so that's what he means. So they were faithful. That's what he means by you kept my word and have not denied my name. That again speaks of their faithfulness and holding on to Jesus as their Messiah. Okay. So Jesus rewards, notice what I say, graciously rewards them a door of evangelism because of their faithfulness to him. All right. All right. Now let's look at now, since there is no, Um, negative. The Lord has nothing negative to say about this particular church. As we move to verse number nine, we're going to see him make mention of other things since there is nothing negative to say. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie and I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Okay, so Now, have you guys noticed that we're kind of breaking this up a little bit more each verse in particular? But nevertheless, let's go on. The synagogue of Satan and those who call themselves Jews. Now, there are a couple of ways to look at this, maybe even more. But let me just give you guys two general ways to understand it those who call themselves Jews. First of all, what is interesting is during this particular time, basically roughly around the end of the 1800s, I believe it was, a lot of Jewish people, a great number of Jewish people uh, came to Jesus Christ. And if you guys are well aware, there has always been a sense of hostility towards Jesus as Messiah from the Jews as a whole. And I want to make that clear. There has always and you can see that even in the gospel as the Jews and the Jewish people influenced by their leaders rejected Jesus. All right. And so from that and and there was hostility even in the scriptures towards Jesus. And even to this day, there is a sense of a certain hostility towards Jesus by the Jews as a whole. Okay, now be careful, don't ever fall into anti Semitism, hate being hateful of the Jews. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just simply trying to give you the fact of the matter, but nevertheless, it is the case, and help you guys understand it. And you can also see, even in the scripture in the book of Acts, that when Jews began to believe upon Jesus, they were often persecuted by other Jews. Noted. Paul himself was a Jewish rabbi, and he himself had what did he do? He got letters from the uh, the chiefs the Sanhedrin he got letters from the Sanhedrin in order to persecute other Jews so persecution of Jews by Jews was a very common thing all right and especially when the Namely, that is, I'm speaking namely when these Jews were believers in Jesus as Messiah. So now that's one way of understanding it. And I think that is the proper way to understand this particular text. Those who call themselves Jews and are not. And the reason why he says those who call themselves Jews, it doesn't mean that they are not genetically Jews Yes, they they may very well actually be genetically Jews, physically, biological descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But remember what Paul said in Romans chapter two, a true Jew is not one who is simply a biological descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But a true Jew is a lover of God, a keeper of the commandments of God, a believer in Jesus Christ. This is also what Peter refers to when he says that the believers in Jesus, those Jewish believers. Now, stay stay with me, guys. I'm talking about Jews and Jews alone. I'm not talking about non-Jewish Christians, okay? I'm not talking about Gentile Christians. That's what most of us are, Gentile, but Jewish Christians. So Peter was referring to, uh, in the letter of Peter, when he talked about those who were, had been dispersed, he was saying that they were the true remnant of God. It's not just simply all Jews in general, biological Jews are the remnant of God, but those who are believers in Jesus as Messiah, those Jews who are the believers that Jesus is the Messiah. They are the true remnant. So back to this point that we're trying to, we're belaboring. So the issue here becomes those true Jewish believers in Jesus Christ were being persecuted in some way or another by Jews who were not believers. So that's one way of understanding those who are the synagogue of Satan. The synagogue of Satan are Jews who are not believers in Jesus' messiahship, and the idea seems to imply that there is some sense of persecution or rejection, and probably is most likely rejection. And even so, even today, that that exists today, that in certain Jewish families today, that if a, a Jew becomes a believer in Jesus. The family sometimes disowns that person and sometimes they say you're not even a Jew. They say you're no longer a Jew. You cannot be. And even though the person is biologically a Jew, they say because you believe in Jesus, you are no longer a Jew. So I think this is what is happening here when it says those who are the synagogue of Satan. They are Jews biologically, but there's a sense of the rejection of Jews who are believers in Jesus. Okay. And Jesus is simply letting these in the church of Philadelphia know that indeed you are of the true synagogue of God. And this idea will be cemented as we get to the end of this section. You are truly of the household of God. You'll see that when Jesus began to say, and I'm going to make you a pillar in the house of my God. But that's not, we're not there yet. We're just dealing with that. But so the other thing, to, the other way of looking at this is these are people who, Gentiles, who call themselves the true Jews or the true uh, people of God. You can see that, say for instance, with the Jehovah's witness and the 144,000, they consider there's a certain, and I don't have time to go through all of that, but if you are familiar with, uh, the religion of Jehovah's witness, they have a certain number of people called the 144,000, the elect, and, and consider themselves in that sense of the true Jews. And also, uh, you have this, Knew, I don't know how new the sect is, but it's, you hear a lot about it, the Hebrew Israelites nowadays, and they call themselves the true Jews or the true Israelites, okay? So that could be looked at in that sense, but I don't think that that is the case, but it is another option that we have available to us. But nevertheless, the point that Jesus is bringing is he will make such people who are so hostile against his people, confess that indeed they are God's people. Okay. And all of the rest of it is just that the things that they themselves were claiming is falsehood. All right. And that's what it means by make them come down to bow before at your feet and know that I have loved you. He's going to, in the end, there will be vindication for God's people. Verse 10 Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that hour, which is which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, here's where we want to take our time. Remember, as we look at this, we we know that the literal church of Philadelphia is no more, even though interesting enough, there is still a Christian witness in that area today. But nevertheless, the church of Philadelphia is no more. And this is the reason why we understand that the text, the letters to the seven churches have both a literal meaning to those churches that existed in that day. And it also has a prophetic meaning. It it, it, it speaks to the church as a whole. And this is what we dealt with by dealing with the church age, the ages of the church, the periods of the church. All right. And with that understanding, as we look at verse number 10, we let us look at now the issue that, that I want to deal with. He talked about he says, number one, because you have kept the word of my perseverance. In other words, simply because you have held on to me, speaking simply of their faithfulness to Jesus. He says, I will keep you from the hour of testing. That is the hour of tribulation. And notice how that hour encompasses. He says, that is to come up on the face of of the whole world, come upon the whole world. This is what is referred to as the great tribulation, the hour that is to come. And, it, and this is the reason why I was just going back to understanding the church time from a prophetic point of view. The church itself, the church of Philadelphia, or in other words, the true and genuine believers, all right, will be kept from the hour or from the day of the great tribulation. This speaks of the rapture of the church, because notice what he says, this testing comes upon the face of the whole world. And notice he says, I will also keep you out of it. And if you looked at in the Greek, it uses the term, ek. it means out from you. So with the church, of Philadelphia, or we can understand the church as a whole, because this applies to all true Christian believers, will be kept out of the great tribulation. The church will not go through. And remember, the, the great tribulation, guys, you'll see it oftentimes talked about in Old Testament, the day of the Lord. It is basically that seven year period in which the Lord will send great judgments upon the world. You will see that for the most part, beginning in chapter seven, you, you'll see pretty much getting ready for, for all of that at chapter seven, the great the point of the great tribulation beginning with the judgments. Okay. The seals. That's, that's what we're talking about. The seals, the trumpets and the bold judgments. All of these things take place during what we call the day of the Lord or The great tribulation, but nevertheless, the promise of Jesus is because the church is, has been faithful. He will rapture the church from so that when the tribulation begins, the church will not be a part of it. All right. And he says that this, that's why he said this test or this tribulation would test everybody on the face of the earth because the great tribulation Will be upon the whole planet as a whole. All right, verse 11. I hope I made that part clear. There's much to be said about it, and as we move through other sections in Revelation, we'll talk more so about that. Okay? 11. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which come down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. OK, so now Jesus simply says as he so we've, we've had the commendation. We've had the exhortation. There was nothing critical that Jesus had to say about this church. And so now Jesus finishes with his words of promises. And so he says, I am coming quickly. Now that word, takus, which that's the word that's actually used Greek quickly. It simply means suddenly. It it, it doesn't mean that from the moment that Jesus begins to write and John wrote the particular letter, look for Jesus to come back. In the time of soon, it means the idea of when Jesus does come, it will be suddenly, instantly, or in other words, there is no time to prepare. His coming will be, notice he always said in in the Gospels, like a thief. He'll catch you and it'll come quickly, twinkling of an eye, and it's all over with. But anyway, so because of the nature of his coming, unexpectedly and so quickly, not giving anybody a chance to prepare, what does he say? Continue in the work, hold fast that which you have, and and, and just simply say, he has nothing bad to say about the church, so he just simply admonishes them, remain faithful, steadfast in holding to the faith steadfast in trusting in Jesus steadfast in your labor. You just keep on doing what you're and that's basically what Jesus is saying to this church. You just keep on doing what you're doing. I don't have any problems with you whatsoever. How many churches if Jesus had to appear now and if he had to speak, could he literally say that about today? Simply hold fast to what you're doing. I have no problems at all with you. You know, as a pastor myself, this is what I pray. I hope and pray that Jesus would have to say about me and the small flock that I pastor, that I have no problems with what you're doing. Hold fast until I come. But nevertheless, let's go on. So that no one will take your crown and that that's self-evident that you will receive a reward from the Lord in that day. Okay. Then in the continuation of the promises, he promised he who overcomes, notice that I'll make a pillar of that person in my God. By the use of the term pillar, it simply means a permanent, permanent place. And the reference to temple of God is in the heavenly temple in the new Jerusalem. So the comfort that Jesus gives, to the saints in the church of Philadelphia is a place of permanence. And all throughout verse number 12, This is the idea that's moving throughout the verse, the sense of permanence. And remember that we talked about earlier in verse number nine, when Jesus talked about those in the synagogue of Satan, and I was explaining to you once again about how uh, 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 certain Jewish people were saying, well, you're not even Jews anymore. You're not even true people of God anymore. And notice the emphasis now is Jesus saying, indeed, you are a people people of God. And by the sense of that permanence, by the sense of that permanence that we see in the text, it brings that point home even more. Yes, you are indeed God's people. Why? Because you're going to be made a permanent pillar, pillar, an unmovable column in the house of God. And notice, he will not go out in, in and out anymore. See, this, see the idea of permanence, no more going in, you are with God forever. No matter what they say, and then he says, I write on him the name of my God. Sense of permanence is there too, but also possession. Write on the name of the God, the name of city, new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven, and Jesus' new name. So he promises three things to write on that person in some way or another. We don't know exactly how it will be done. On the believer would be written the name of God, the name of the new Jerusalem, and Jesus' own new name. This speaks of, once again, permanent, but permanent possession. So notice how this contrasts with the idea of verse number nine. When those who were were saying, you are not of God, Jesus is saying, most definitely, you are of God, and I will make this known. And even one day, verse number nine, I will make those very same people acknowledge that indeed you are the people of God. And then he says for a final admonition, as he always does with all of these letters, he who has an ear, let him hear. That is to consider the message that he has given to the church of Philadelphia. Think on these things and respond accordingly. And when we look at the church of Philadelphia, the Lord Jesus having nothing negative to say about them. He simply says, continue in your good work. And I hope you guys do the same thing, too. All right. I'll catch you next time. Have you subscribed yet? What are you waiting for? Subscribe now.